Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nika Canton, and today we're talking about how to retire from your job as the mistake police. Hello, beautiful teachers. Welcome back to the show and welcome if this is your first time listening. So today's show is about the mistake police and how to sort of retire yourself from the mistake police. Before I explain what I mean by all of that, let me tell you where it came from. So this was inspired by an article on the blog released at the same time as this episode. The blog is at colorfulkeys.ie slash blog. So in case you are new, I wanted to let you know how this all works. So sometimes I write the articles myself and then the podcast follows fairly closely because it's my thoughts. But when we have guest writers on the blog, I tend to take something they've said and go in a different direction with it. So it's definitely worth reading the article today as well. It's from Hannah and it's absolutely a great read. It's called The Messy Approach to Teaching Piano. But Hannah used this phrase, the mistake police, which I believe she also borrowed from Paul Harris. She went to a talk of his recently and it just inspired this whole tangent for me. So when we talk about the mistake police, this is basically when you fall into the trap of having your student play a piece and you're just constantly correcting them. Hannah talks about it in the context of starting from the beginning and going bar by bar, measure by measure through a piece. But it can also, I think, come up where we let our students kind of have free reign with a piece and then they come back after practicing for a week and we correct things. And it's not always the most efficient way to teach. And I would say, especially in the beginning few years, I think it's something we want to avoid. And it's very easy to fall into this routine of just being the mistake police. So this would be characterized by, yes, sometimes going from the beginning of music and working super slowly through the piece, perhaps demonstrating each bar for your student so that they can then try it, quote unquote, read it, but really they're copying you a lot of the time. It can also be that you're throwing your students in at the deep end so that most of the time you turn the page and open up a new piece and just say, all right, have a read through that there or something similar that sounds colloquially appropriate to you. This is sometimes a great thing to do. It's something I try to do with my students periodically to give them a piece that I think doesn't have a ton of new material in it and actually not in the lesson, but at home. Tell them, okay, at home, I want you to look at this 
by yourself and see how far you can get without any help and then I'll help you with it next week. So that can be a good exercise to do from time to time. But if it's the routine, I think it does need a little bit of a different approach. This also can show up the mistake police in what I call to my students my least favourite note reading method. This is actually how I label it to my students. So this is when a student, for example, it's a starting note of a piece or a, a note that is wrong and I've pointed out to them that they need to look at it again. They just look at my face and play different notes. <laughs> so I call that my least favourite note reading method because it's where they're just looking for my face to see what my, re- my reaction is until they get their right note. And I keep a strict poker face when they do that and do not react when it is the correct note because I want them to be able to look at their music and have the confidence to figure out the note, which most of the time when they're doing this, they actually can figure out notes. They fully have the tools and they're able to do it. They're just at that stage where it takes them a second sometimes to figure out what the note is when it's out of context and they're not reading by interval. That's my least favorite note reading method. Another part of the mistake police, though, and this is characterized by that one note reading method, but also in many different areas, is that students become overly reliant on you. So that's fine when they're in regular lessons, but we want them to eventually graduate from us and keep playing, don't we? So if they need to be spoon fed each element of the piece, they're not going to be able to do that. Even if we think, oh yeah, but they could. They could do it themselves. They kind of could, but they haven't learned the skill of being confident enough in what they're figuring out by themselves. So often students who have had a lot of teacher demonstration and stuff as part of their as part of their learning process, even when they are reading it correctly, they don't trust themselves enough to believe that it is correct unless perhaps they've heard it online. But if they're reading, like truly sight reading a piece of music, they don't trust themselves. So even if they have the skills to read it, they won't because they don't believe they'll know whether it's right or wrong. Another side effect of the mistake police, I believe, can often be students who are apology players. (laughs) This is when students you know, test things out and just sorry, sorry, sorry the whole way through their piece, or they might go, oops, or they might just say wait or make a little random sound that isn't really a word. But basically they're apologizing for making mistakes. And when we haven't set students up in a way that they can make mistakes and correct them themselves and know that that's part of the learning process, when it's just us constantly correcting them, they feel like they're doing something wrong every time they do that. They feel like they were supposed to be able to play it without making any mistakes And that's why we interrupt them to correct their mistakes. So let's think about how to avoid it. If any of this rings true to you, you're not alone. I've seen many lessons and been part of many lessons like this, both as a student and as a teacher. So I think the first thing for me is that you truly understand the repertoire you're teaching. That takes lesson planning time. I'm not going to lie to you and say there's an easy way to fix this. But you actually have to understand the pieces you're teaching. You have to have gone through them. And this gets easier with time because there'll be pieces that you've taught many times and you'll also get faster at figuring out pieces from a teaching perspective. But in the beginning, it does take time because you need to go through the piece that your student is going to learn and figure out where the challenges are, what they need to know, what are all the steps towards being able to play this successfully. Not from your perspective or from where you are in your playing journey, but from theirs. 
you need to be able to get inside not really inside their mind but inside the learning process of the student where they are on the learning path what previous knowledge they have what skills they have and what's new to them so that you can fully understand this piece as a learning moment for them when you've done that you can do things like start with the most interesting or most challenging most interesting bits is a is a term from our community manager Gemma that I really like rather than calling bits of a piece the tricky bit which I used to do a lot it's often the most interesting bit of the piece as well as being the most difficult so why not why don't we label it like that right so it enables us to start in the middle with the most interesting part of the piece or at the end or wherever that may be in the left hand pattern when we understand the piece we can do that we know which part it is it also enables us to properly design preparatory steps depending on the piece that might be tapping the rhythm with both hands because it's really the most challenging part of it might be coordinating the hand or for this student the most challenging part is going to be coordinating the two hands in the rhythm that it's in it could be singing it it could be listening to it while following along with the score there are many different ways to prepare for a piece but if we properly design those we're taking our students along the path so that the first time they play that piece or a section of it sometimes but they're able to play it successfully yet yeah, not at full performance tempo but successfully we're setting them up in a way that they probably won't make a mistake we probably won't have to correct anything and then once you have those preparatory steps those can be repeated as part of how they're supposed to practice their practice instructions for at home or that you tell to parents or whatever way you work those steps can be done every day to prepare them to play the piece so that they play it successfully and that means they get more practice literally of playing it correctly versus when students go home and play things wrong a bunch of times and that's what their fingers are learning now alongside this and approaching pieces in this more methodical way is developing skills elsewhere away from these pieces if you know me for a little while you'll know that i love using games for this to work on theory and movement activities and different ways of working on all these skills making sure i'm covering rhythm separately from my pieces that i have a separate plan for covering that and oral skills and everything else they need to learn so that those things are developing not just through the pieces i know a lot of people talk about teaching through the music but i'm not talking about making things unmusical i'm talking about supporting what we're doing in the music so that it's easier to learn those pieces and finally i will just point out that the repertoire needs to be easy enough if we're not going to be the mistake police the pieces actually have to be easy enough for our student if we let students work on music that is just really too hard for them we are going to have to spoon feed it to them there's no other way to do it now i think this is fine for a particular piece that a student is in love with and really wants to learn and it's just a bit beyond their level fine one off pieces fine but in terms of their regular repertoire their supplemental books or method books or whatever what we have them in they need to be at the right level that they can learn them with a bit of help from us yes but not as i say spoon feeding i see this become a problem most of the time through the exam system when students just get on the exam express and they do exam after exam year after year and there's no question about them going to the next one and often they don't practice 
like teachers assign them other stuff in between exams, but they don't practice it. They only practice the exam pieces. Well, they're just way below the level they're supposed to be at for those pieces. So those have to be, you know, dripped into them by the teacher because otherwise there's no other way they're going to learn them. That's a whole other discussion in terms of exams. But no matter where the repertoire is coming from, whether it's an exam syllabus or just repertoire collections, make sure it is at an accessible level for that student. So let me know if you feel like a member of the mistake police right now or if you fall into this trap previously or if you totally disagree with me and you think this is the correct way to learn and I'm full of nonsense. You can let me know that too. I'd love you to join the discussion with us on our Instagram, which is at Colourful Keys. I'll see you there and I'll see you back here next week. If you ever get overwhelmed by all the different teacher training options out there, Vibrant Music Teaching is the place for you. We nickname our members Flamingos because they're masters of balancing all of the things and making it all work in a way that isn't overwhelming. We have tools to help you do that inside Vibrant Music Teaching. So go to vmt.ninja and sign up today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.